Okay, we are at Acts chapter 20 today, but we want to go back for a little bit of leftover, little leftovers from last week. I, I failed to mention a couple of things. In Acts chapter 19, in the very first paragraph, we see there's a group of people that were baptized for the wrong reason. And I, I intended to tie that in with the passage you're probably familiar with, where we see one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You recall where that is found, what book that's in? The book of Ephesians, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7, where we see all the ones listed. And I thought it'd be interesting to tie that in with the one, there's one baptism, he says there, and that's what Paul is correcting in the first few verses of Acts 19. He's saying there's one baptism. And that's, again, what he repeated when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4. Also, I failed to mention verse 21 and 20 through 23 of Acts 19. Acts 19, verse 21, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. After, or saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. A couple of things about that. <clears throat> the book of 1 Corinthians appears to be, have been written during this time period here in verses 21 through 22. He wrote the book of uh, 1 Corinthians back to those brethren there. And uh, also the idea here where he says, I must also see Rome. Paul's intention is to go to Rome. He's going to get to go to Rome, but he's actually not going to go perhaps in the way that he thought he would, but he is going to get to Rome, go to Rome and do minister in many different ways. So now let's fast, uh, go forward to into chapter 20. But before we do, let's do our memory work. Let's go back to chapter uh, 1 through 10, do our memory work from chapters 1 through 10. Chapter 1 is the ascension and the choosing of Matthias. Acts chapter 2 is what? Beginning of the church, Acts chapter 3. Who is healed? Lame man's healed. And always tie that in with chapter 4 and 5 because that begins the anger of the Jewish council. Chapter 4, what happens? The apostles are arrested and threatened. Chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, and then later in the chapter, uh, the apostles are arrested and beaten, beaten and charged. Chapter 6, the widows neglected, chapter 7, Stephen stoned, Acts 8, persecution spreads the gospel and the Ethiopian eunuch, chapter 9. Saul's conversion, and then chapter 10, Cornelius, the Gentiles' conversion. You're doing very, very well, very well. <clears throat> I give everybody an A+. Plus. All right, let's go to ch chapter 20, and then let's find our place on the map first. Uh, if you look kind of a uh, little bit off the center of the map here, find the city of Ephesus. 
And uh, we are going to begin at Ephesus in the first part of this, this chapter, Acts 20, and we're going to go up the coastline, we're going to go northward up the coastline in the book. So we want to look, or in the chapter, we want to look at this before we get into the text. We'll go up and perhaps along the coast there from Troas to Macedonia, and then back down to what some of your versions will call Greece. Here on the map is called Achaia, that same area. So that's the area that we're looking at. Acts chapter 20, the text says, after the uproar ceased, that is what happened in Acts 19, the riot in Ephesus. After that ceased, having, Paul having sent for the disciples and exhorted them, took leave of them and departed to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone through those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. So you see there's a lot of uh, quick movement here as we read. Uh, just going from one place to another. The, apparently, after the uproar, this caused uh, Paul to hasten his move on through the area of Macedonia and then to Greece. And in, actually, in this section here, we find that Paul perhaps uh, was wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. And we'll go to... Uh, Let's look at this here as it ties in to verse 1 and 2. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, he says there as he writes to them, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach, the Christ, preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. Now remember that verse 12 there and kind of hold that in thought as we get to the end of our lesson today. In Troas, a door was opened to me by the Lord. Verse 13, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. And then we would also do well to tie in that same book, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5 here in this period of time. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. See, Titus brought good news of the brethren's uh, progress in the gospel from Macedonia, uh, from Corinth. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, so forth. And actually, what is a little bit more behind this is that they were willing and strong enough of a church to put the man away in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a large part of this good news that Paul is seeing, that they're taking care of the immediate need of discipline in the church. So let's go back to the text, Acts chapter 20. Now as we continue here in verse 3. When he had spent three months there and a plot was laid against him, this is in Greece, and uh, more accurately we would would, uh, come to understand that this was apparently Corinth, a plot was laid against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. He determined to return through Macedonia. So we're, as you saw on the map, we're going through those areas along the coastline down to Greece, and then he spends three months there. And very quickly in the text, we're going right back where we came from. But what happens to cause this sudden change of plans, you might say? 
persecution. There, there was a plot laid against him, verse 3, to uh, perhaps to kill Paul. And it seems that as he's getting ready to set sail for Syria, verse 3, he determined to go through Macedonia, that is by, by land rather than by sea. So we see here and we'll see here as verse 3, I think, is a major shift in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13 through this point, it's all been missionary journeys, going to cities, preaching the gospel. And there's a major shift here that happens here in verse 3, and it continues really for the most part of the rest of the book. Paul's plans are not so uh, easy to come by, and he's having to change plans, and people are making plans for him, you might say, along the way here. Verse 4, they're accompanying him as far as Asia, Sopater, the son of Pyrrhus, and and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy of Asia, uh, rather, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. But these had gone before and were waiting for us at Troas. So here again we have the idea we talked a moment ago about Troas. We're back to Troas now, and these men are waiting for Paul at Troas, Verse 6, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, came to them to Troas in five days where we tarried seven days. Now let's catch up on our outline here. Macedonia, we see there's much exhortation. He goes down to Greece, spends three months, and a plot is laid against Paul. Uh, certainly we see by the Jews here. And the destination, it appears initially in verse 3, was Syria, Antioch. Our home base is at Syria. Perhaps that's where he wanted to go initially. But now that is, those plans are interrupted by a plot to get Saul or to get Paul. And this plot is enough to make him change his mind. We don't know what all's behind this. It could be that perhaps also that they wanted to remember these men here from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 3 and 4. There are men chosen to go with Paul to carry the bounty to Jerusalem. It could be that these men are those men to do that. And uh, with a large sum of money, it would be better to be very, very careful how you sail, who knows about it, and where you go, where you travel. Uh, it, it also, it, it turn, as it turns out, this is very beneficial for the churches along the way, along the route back, because they're revisited by Paul, and it's going to be the last time that they see, uh, many of them, the last time that they see Paul's face. All right, let's look at these men here just a moment. There's about three men I wanted to highlight here. First is Aristarchus, perhaps being the same Aristarchus we saw last week in chapter 19. Aristarchus, uh, we will see him again if it's the same Aristarchus in Colossians 4, Paul says he is my fellow prisoner. So we see what kind of character these men have, what, what they're made of. Aristarchus is willing to be a fellow prisoner with Paul. Gaius of Derby. I notice that, that all these men are picked up at places we've been on the journeys. Paul sees these men 
encourages them to go with him, to minister, takes them with him. He picked up Gaius at Derby, or perhaps was introduced to him there. Gaius later in Romans chapter 16 would be Paul's host when he wrote that letter to the Romans. He would be his host, giving him a place to stay. Of course, you know about Timothy. Tychicus uh, is interesting as well. He was willing to be a messenger. He was a messenger of the book of Ephesians and Colossians, carrying those gospels or carrying those epistles to the uh, proper places, proper cities. When When you think about men such as this that are willing to work, willing to travel, willing to forsake their lives that they had, maybe where they were, you see the character of some good men that are required, companions. Paul couldn't do it by himself. He needed, he needed help to do, accomplish the things that he did required help. And here we see outlined seven men that are good companions, good companions to have, good help to have. We don't all have to be a Paul. Many of us can help in many different ways by being a minister in in whatever way we can. Maybe it's like Tychicus. Maybe you're the one that's carrying the gospel to these people, carrying the letter to these people, help in whatever way that they can. Okay, let's, uh, looking at verse 1 through 6 as well, as we look at, at this shift in what's taking place and the plans of Paul, we look back all the way back to chapter 13 and tie this into chapter 13 through chapter 20, verse 3. And we see a sort of a group of time, first, second, third journey, where Paul is able to travel somewhat where he wants to go, make plans. But uh, and this is about a 13-year period, if you can comprehend that. It's about a 13-year period that goes on here in, since chapter 13. Yes? Say so, uh one name that's not mentioned here is Luke. Apparently, uh, on his second journey, he left Luke in Philippi. And now as he travels north back through Macedonia and he's over to Troas, now all of a sudden Luke said, he starts saying, us and we. Mm-hmm. So Luke had rejoined Paul on his way back to Jerusalem. Okay. Yeah, particularly, I guess, verse 4, he mentions us, the pronoun us. Uh or verse 5, and uh, would include Luke here again in the company. And you're right, you say as we say perhaps he left him at Philippi and he rejoined him now. So let's go on to verse 7. We're at uh, coming upon the city of Troas. They tarry there seven days. Verse 7 says, Well, the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul discoursed with them, intending to depart on the morrow. He prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber when we were gathered together, and there sat a young man in a window named Eutychus. He was born down with deep sleep. And I would think that perhaps these many lights in there created such a heat that it would be easy to fall asleep. And he falls out of the window. He's born down with sleep. Paul kept talking, discoursed yet longer. Born down with deep sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Two things here I wanted to really point out in this paragraph is that 
we see the partaking of the Lord's Supper mentioned, and also that obviously that Eutychus is going to be later raised from the dead. Many times uh, preachers will look at verse 7 and, and find authority to preach until midnight. And I find that interesting, but you don't ever hear them talking about the idea the next day of departing on the morrow, never to be seen from again. So you have to take one, you have to take both, right? <clears throat> That's not directed at any of our ministers. Here, so. <clears throat> Verse 10, Paul went down after the young man fell out of the window, fell on him and embraced him and said, his life is in him. He was gone up and had broken, and when he was gone up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. And they brought the lad alive and were not a little comforted. The, the idea that we see here in verse 7, upon the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, this is not worded in a direct command fashion for us. In other words, it does not say, Thou shalt take partake of the Lord's Supper upon the first day of the week. We find our example for doing so here, but what is the method of interpretation that we use for this verse to partake of the Lord's Supper? It's not what we call a direct command, but a what? An approved example for partaking of the Lord's Supper. These brethren were gathered together upon the first day of the week, verse 7, when we were gathered together to break bread. <clears throat> also, I, I feel like verse 11 is using the phrase break bread again. And I think it's probably what we're seeing is uh, like in Acts chapter 2, the earlier stating of that phrase is for the Lord's Supper in Acts 2 verse 43. And then later in that chapter, verse 46, it's a breaking bread of a social type. And I think perhaps verse 11 is that type of breaking bread after the young man had been raised from the dead. Now, this is one of only two resurrections in the New Testament after Jesus. We have Dorcas in the book of Acts and we have Eutychus in the book of Acts, a raising from the dead. I don't know, but I, I wonder if Paul's sermon included I, the idea of the resurrection. We've seen already, we've talked about this how many times the, the word resurrected or resurrection or raised from the dead is mentioned in the book of Acts. It's over 30 times. And so many times when we see Paul speaking at length, he's bringing up the ideas of the resurrection. And perhaps it is that he preached that night on the resurrection and to have someone die and bring them back to life. Not that it's so much an object lesson, but tying that in, showing people the power that the, they have through the name of Jesus to raise the dead further certifies that what they're saying is genuine. When they talk about the resurrection of Jesus that they can, they can not only bring back physical life, but they have the power of Christ. And 
therefore we have eternal life as well. We can be resurrected to be raised to eternal life as well. So I think, not saying that that's the lesson that he taught, but it would be quite interesting if he had been speaking on the resurrection that night. And uh, lo and behold, we have a resurrection, bodily resurrection here right before their eyes. You notice in the first part of the lesson we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that Paul had an open door. He felt he had an open door in Troas. He wasn't able to take advantage of that initially, and now this way, going back around, having changed his plans, he's able to get back there, and perhaps he is now utilizing that open door that is there in Troas by the lessons that we've seen here in the last few verses. Any thoughts up to that point? Any comments? Okay, did I have one over here? Okay. I think it's important for us to understand what verse 7 says. They came together to break bread. That's why we're here this morning. We've come together uh, to remember uh, Christ's death. The singing and, and the preaching, of course, are, are important in praising God and, and thanksgiving. But our prime reason is to, is to break bread. And, and you're uh, right that in, in the latter part, they went back up, <clears throat> and it says they broke bread and they ate, which signifies uh, that meal. Paul would later <clears throat> emphasize to the Corinthians that when they came together, it was not to partake of the Lord's Supper. So we need to, we need to be very consistent. Uh, in understanding the Lord's Supper is the reason we're here, that we all partake here, and that's why we've come together, to remember our salvation. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think Paul, uh, I don't know what he preached, but I don't think you can preach Jesus without preaching the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, both, they're both tied in together, weren't they? <clears throat> Verse 13, now we go before to the ship. There, uh, you, you sense the urgency to move on, to travel on, to go, and Paul is trying to get to Jerusalem. Uh, they go, just summarizing here, verse 14, they, when we met at Asos, we took him in and we came to Mytilene. Sailing from this, we came the following day over against Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos. And then we came to Miletus. Here's the reason that we see in verse 16 that Paul is in such a hurry. He had determined to sail past Ephesus that he might not have time to spend in Asia, for he was hastening as it were, or if it were possible for him to be at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So there's the reason. He wants to get to Jerusalem now for the day of Pentecost. Perhaps a little bit different reason than or uh, a goal, destination that he had in verse 3 when he was intending to go to Syria initially. So now at this point he's wanting to go to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and be there uh, when a lot of people will be there. A lot of people can hear Paul. A lot of people that are Jews can hear Paul on that day. And that's actually what's going to happen. In verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them. Now, let's catch up on our 
uh, outline here. In Miletus, this is verse 13, or about verse 16, rather, through verse 38, uh, the end of the chapter here, where he calls for the elders of the church. And as it were, I would call this somewhat a, of a sermon here that he gives to the elders of the church. It's a very, it's not a, an assembly as such where people of all walks of life may be there to listen. This is directed at the elders of the church. And it, I want you to see the tone that it's given in as well. <clears throat> this is not suggestion. This is not, you know, we recall the days when we were with you and, and uh, didn't we have such a good time at Ephesus? And we had so many good times there. Paul is very, very intent, very focused, admonishing these elders in their work. This is not a time to recall the, the days that, that we were with you and have fun talking about those days. Paul begins in verse 18, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, what matter I was with you all the time, serving the Lord with all lowliness of mind, with tears and with trials, which befell me by the plots of the Jews. Now this first part of the lesson He's going to give them, he's going to be shining the spotlight on himself, not boastfully, but he says, I want you to remember and, and really understand the ministry I had with you and allow that to motivate you to do, be the type of elders that you should be. And I think we can highlight some of these things here. Uh, well, let's go back to the, to the map here before we do. I, I wanted to show you this. Let's go back and look at where he is. We, we're very close to the city of Ephesus, about 30 miles away or so. We're at Miletus. And he's staying there close to the ship where they can get ready to sail away at, you might, might say, a moment's notice. When that ship is ready to leave, he's going to be ready to go. And he doesn't want to spend time in Ephesus there where he might lose his ability to travel back to Jerusalem. So he's at Miletus, calls the elders, and I think we can highlight and even itemize some of these things. I'll call this the pattern for the preacher in verse 18 through 27. Many times we'll, we'll go to the book of 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy. We'll talk about things that a preacher needs to do and understand and follow. As well, I think you can add to that here, Acts 20 and verse 18 through 27. First of all, he says, I was with you in lowliness, verse 19, with tears and trials which befell me by the plots of the Jews. Now that's no advertisement. If you want people to join by droves, you don't advertise in this way, do you? I was with you in lowliness, tears and trials which befell me by the plots of the Jews. Verse 20, how I shrank not from declaring unto you anything that was profitable and teaching it publicly from house to house. So he boldly taught, he boldly preached what was needed, not what was popular, not what kept him out of the line of fire, not what kept him from having a target on his back. 
He boldly taught, he boldly preached what was needed. And he did that, as verse 20 says, he did it both publicly and privately. Again, this is, we cannot stress and not overlook how much this would really apply to anybody that wants to be a preacher, wants to be a minister of the gospel. Go to Acts chapter 20, read those things, read what it takes. Understand the the amount of work that goes into it, the amount of trials. Verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Spirit testifies unto me in every city, the saying that bonds and afflictions abide me there in Jerusalem. So now he knows a little bit more about what's going to take place. In Acts chapter 18, he was told by the Spirit, don't fear, stay in this city, don't be afraid, no one's going to hurt you here. Now there's a different story. Now along the way, he's told by the Holy Spirit that bonds and afflictions will abide you there. And he will continue amidst afflictions. Where is it he's headed? To Jerusalem? What does he already know is going to, he's going to find there? Bonds and afflictions? Maybe I would be going the other way. I'd probably be going back to Corinth, wouldn't you? I'd be tempted to go back to Corinth. I had it. I was safe there at one time. Maybe I could be safe there again. Not Paul. Not at this point in time. He's willing to continue amidst afflictions. He goes on to say in verse 24, I hold not my life of any account as dear unto myself so that I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. This reminds me of Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 where Paul said, For me to live and to die is gain. It's kind of the same thought, isn't it? For me to live and to die is gain. He says, I hold up my life, verse 24, of any account, as dear unto myself that I, I hold it, and that's the utmost of an utmost importance to me, that I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I receive from Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. You see, the gospel takes precedent over his own life. If he, if he holds in a balance the gospel and holds his own life, Which one takes precedent? The gospel does, doesn't it? The gospel takes precedent. Verse 25, Now behold, I know that you all, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, shall see my face no more. Wherefore I testify unto you this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. That causes me to think of the... Well, let me, let's continue here. Verse 27, I shrank not from declaring unto you the whole counsel of God. So he declares, was willing to declare the whole counsel of God. And thereby, I think he's saying, I was free from the blood of all men. It reminds me of Ezekiel chapter 33, where the watchman is told to warn people 
And if he does so, he is free from the blood of men. I think it's Ezekiel 33, verse, about verse 9. That's similar to what Paul is saying here. I've, I shrank not from declaring unto you the whole counsel of God, and thereby I am free from the blood of all men, as verse 26 said. I am pure from the blood of all men. That's God's way. It was his design back in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, and we see Paul is setting that same principle here forth to us today. The only way to be free from the blood of all men is to preach the whole counsel of God. What does that mean, the whole counsel of God? What does that idea mean? Anyone? Yes. I think one of the things it could mean um, that would tie to what Paul told Timothy, he said, uh, convince, reprove, rebuke, you know, exhort, depending on what, de- what you know, words your uh, various versions have because, they, you know, they've got some different synonyms in there. Um, but you're going you're, you're gonna to be preaching the things that people want to hear and, and maybe the things that people don't want to hear. Uh, but you can't hold back. I mean, you got to teach it all. You can't be selective and say, "Well, you know, you, I think you would like this, so let's let's talk about this, and we won't talk about the other stuff." Well, we got to have it all. Mm-hmm. In season, out of season. Preach it when it's popular. Preach it when it's not popular. Is the the idea, as you say? <clears throat> he declared the whole counsel of God, even when he sees something that. Might step on people's toes. He preaches on it anyway because it's what we need to hear. It's not what we sometimes like so much, but it's what we need to hear. It's what keeps us spiritually healthy, isn't it? He shrank not from declaring the whole counsel of God. Now we shift gears here, and we're going to shine the spotlight upon the elders. And here I think we have a good pattern for admonition to elders listed. Previous verses, we saw the pattern for a preacher. What, what pattern today can we use for a preacher? Well, let's go to Acts 20, and we'll find a really good one there. Go to a young man that wants to be a preacher, tell him to read that and read it and read it and read it over and over again before you become a preacher and understand it. Now we have the same thing here perhaps in verse 28. He is shining the spotlight upon the elders. And again, this is a, an admonition, a strong admonition to the elders. Beginning verse 28, he says, Take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit hath made you bishops to feed the church of the Lord which he has purchased with his own blood. Which comes first, taking heed to the flock or to themselves? Apparently to yourselves. Verse 28, take heed to yourselves. To all the flock. How can you lead the flock unless you are yourself prepared and ready for that? In which the Holy Spirit hath made you bishops or overseers. We have in this text all three of the 
ideas about the work of an elder. We had the elders mentioned in verse 17, and then we have the elder or the older man referred to. And then here in this verse, we have both the idea of the bishop, the overseer, as well as we have the idea of a shepherd, the, the one that tends and feeds the flocks. We have all three of those listed here, just like we do in 1 Peter chapter 5. The Lord, he says, has purchased this church with his own blood. I recall in John 10 where there's an analogy that Jesus used, I am the good shepherd. I have these sheep. These are my sheep. He mentions the hireling in that chapter that will do what when the wolves show up? The hireling is all too willing to leave. They're not his. John 10, verse 12, I believe. Here, he's reiterating the idea that these sheep that you're taking care of have been purchased by the blood of Christ to further emphasize to us whose sheep they are and realize, help us realize the importance of taking care of those sheep. Verse 29, I know that after my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. See there again, that idea that we saw in John 10, the wolves are entering, entering in to attack the sheep. The shepherds are there to take care of them. Verse 29, he says, I know that when I depart, grievous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. This will happen. Verse 30 indicates that some of these will come from what pool of people? Even the elders themselves from among you, verse 30, from among your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. See, these are men that love the glory of men more than the glory of God. John 12, we see a group of people that did not choose to confess their faith because they love the glory that is of men more than the glory of God. And that's the type of men these are. They want to draw people unto themselves, not to Christ. Verse 30, they'll speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them unto themselves. So far, we see the elders are to take heed to themselves, take heed to the, and take heed and feed the flock. And a warning from the outside, from the outside, there are wolves that will come in. Some of these wolves will be even from within, from your own selves. Verse 31, wherefore watch, remembering that by the space of three years, I cease not to admonish you, everyone, night and day, with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those that are sanctified. He wants, verse 31, he wants you to remember his toil and tears. What good would it do for the elders to remember Paul's toil and Paul's tears? How would that help them become a better elder? Through the same persecution, they will describe their 
It, it definitely uh, makes a, a big impact. Paul is setting him forth, himself forth as the example. The work and the labor is hard. It's difficult. It's, there's toil and tears. There's trials. There's afflictions. Remember my toil with you. Remember that. Let that motivate you to work as you should. Also, verse 32, I would add that perhaps he's getting them to recall when you get in the trenches and and get in the day-to-day work, don't forget. Where are we going? Where is it we're going? You know, sit back and think for just a moment. We're going to heaven. Think about... Think about, you know, is it worth it to let this go, to shrink back? Is it worth it to, to become lax? We're on our way to heaven. The destination is heaven. And keep that first and foremost in your mind, verse 32. I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you heaven. Don't forget about heaven. If you keep that... You know, all the people that you're tending to, you're trying to help them get to heaven. We're all trying to be in heaven together. Verse 33 through verse 35, he says, I coveted no man's silver or gold. While I was with you for apparel, you know that verse 34, he says, you know that while I was with you, I worked with my own hands to provide for those that were with me. And to provide for those that are weak, for others. So here again, once again, we see Paul mentioning the fact that he worked with his own hands. He labored with his own hands to give to those that are weak. And I think by and large, verse 33 through 35, he's trying to tell them, remember the weak. Help those who are weak. Provide for their needs. We've already seen the spiritual aspects of that. And here, perhaps we're seeing a little bit more of the physical aspects of that as well included. Verse 35, in all things I gave you an example that so laboring, verse 35, here's that idea. We're, we're tying Paul's labor with the elder that, that he has their attention now. Paul says, labor, so labor as I did, not necessarily saying that you have to go out and get a job or whatever and be working. But so labor, and the goal is to be able to provide for those that are weak, that we ought to help the weak, verse 35. After all, Jesus himself said, this is actually a quote that is not in the Gospels, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So as we finish, he says, remember my toil and tears, remember heaven is our destination, be free from covetousness, and labor to provide for those that are weak. Provide for those, the, the others. Provide help to them. <clears throat> and then he finishes with a very emotional parting with the elders as he leaves them with these strong words of instruction, admonition, showing them the serious work that they have And perhaps we can use these, and they were to use these as an outline for the preacher that they have, and an outline for the work of the elders as well. And as he leaves, they were most emotional and fraught with 
tears because they would see Paul's face no more. I guess we better stop there. Any other? Well, maybe we have 30 seconds. Anybody else? Okay. Thank you for your good participation and good attention.